How many of you have heard of the Nag Hammadi libraries? Okay, for those of you that haven't, it's a really fascinating story. Uh, I think it was in the 1940s. Well, I know it was in the 1940s. I don't remember specifically the year. But in the 1940s, there were two brothers who were farmers in Upper Egypt near a place called Nag Hammadi, and they found a uh, vessel (laughs) that contained manuscripts that dated back to the 4th century. That's when they were buried. So they were probably older than that. And there's a picture of the papyri that they found right there. The interesting thing about the story was that these brothers decided they could profit off of it. And so they started uh, trying to peddle these manuscripts and sell them. Uh, The sad part of the story is that the mom got freaked out and burned several of the uh, manuscripts. So they don't even know the full contents inside of it. But uh, eventually, uh, people who uh, study those things uh, got a hold of them and was able to preserve what was left of them. And what they discovered was that these manuscripts were buried in, in, in what was an Egyptian Christian monastery. And they think it was in response to a letter that had been written by uh, St. Athanasius at the time, who was a bishop at the time, very, very influential leader. And he condemned certain manuscripts as being heretical. And so uh, it was kind of the beginnings of how we ended up with our New Testament canon. So one of the manuscripts that was found there is called uh, the Gospel of Thomas. So that's an icon of Thomas right there. Supposedly it was written by the Thomas, who was the disciple of Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, who gets tagged in some circles as doubting Thomas because he didn't believe about the uh, resurrection. But initially, when these manuscripts were looked at and they were found, the Gospel of Thomas specifically was condemned as being part of a what's called a Gnostic heresy. Now, really, if we want to be honest about it, the people who condemned it as Gnostic were people who um, believe that God's revelation is closed. And by that, I mean... It's kind of the same mentality that believes that everything that God has to say can be found in Genesis to Revelation. So these are the people who don't believe that God still speaks today. It's kind of the same mentality. Uh, In other words, the same mentality that rejects uh, personal revelation uh, from God, dreams, visions, gifts of the Spirit, that kind of thing, is the same mentality that just outright rejected these manuscripts because they weren't in our Bibles. Now, scholars today have changed their opinion about uh, the Gospel of Thomas. You, the, the really, people who have really studied it and are in the know about it will say, no, it's probably not heretical. And in fact, it probably does reflect teachings that Christ did. Now, remember, John said if everything that Jesus taught and did was written down, there, would be, there wouldn't be enough books in the um, entire world to fill it. Now, obviously, he's using hyperbole. But uh, but the point is that even our Bibles recognize that there were teachings that not the full record of teaching is recorded in the Gospels that we have. Are you tracking with me? 
So I'm, I'm saying all this to say because what I want to use today is a quote from the Gospel of Thomas, verse 48. It's a short book. It's well worth reading, although there is a lot of mystical and hidden meaning in it, and some of it's just downright weird. (laughs) But some of it corresponds to things that are in our own Bible, so we want to look at stuff through its, its own merit. In verse 48, it says, If the two make peace in this one house, they will say to this mountain, Move away. And it will move. Does that sound familiar? Our Gospels record Matthew has a version of it. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to the mountain, be removed and cast in the sea. And it'll happen. Mark goes into it a little bit more. He says, if you say to the mountain, be removed and cast in the sea. And don't doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen. You'll have whatever you say. So our Gospels accounts of this tell you what to do, but they don't really tell you how to do it. (laughs) And so I think the teachings of Jesus here give us an important key on how to do what he talks about in Mark 11 and in Matthew 17. Because he says, look at this, he says, if the two make peace in this one house, they, everybody say they, (laughs) they will say to this mountain, move away and it will move. So, again, people who who have studied this and who understand the the context of what Jesus is talking about and the fact that he's pointing to an inward reality, what they would say is that the one house is not your home. It's not talking about you and your spouse getting along, (laughs) although that might be a good thing to do. Uh, It's not talking about a church or two people agreeing. It's talking about the house is your physical body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about it this way. If your body is a temple, then your body really is sacred, and what goes on inside is sacred space and priestly and holy. <laughs> so what are the two that need, to make pay, that need to make peace inside of your body? And so what they would tell us is that Jesus is talking about thought and emotion. That if your thought and your emotion can align and make peace, they, your thoughts and your emotions, will speak to the mountain and the mountain will move. In other words, in other words, what Jesus is saying and really what all, what the Bible teaches, what every almost ancient tradition recognizes is that what goes on inside your body at a thinking, feeling, emotional level has an effect on the world around you. And so there's, uh, we looked at a video a few weeks ago from the HeartMath Institute, and the HeartMath Institute has done a lot of uh, scientific experiments that have been replicated. They've been peer-reviewed science, so other people have looked at it. That's been published that your heart literally emits a field, and that field is uh, affected or changed or can be measured based on the emotions that you're feeling. You, you can actually get a biofeedback program from the HeartMath Institute, which Julie and I purchased a while back, and it registers, you, you hook it up to your ear, I think it is, and somehow it's able to register the changes, and you, you can work with it, and it will register the changes in your emotions. And when you're in what they call a fully coherent heart state, meaning you're actually in your heart and you're feeling good, 
it'll measure it and tell you how much, to what degree that is going on. So it's pretty interesting. And what they've shown is that, and other military experiments and different things have shown over the years, that what happens at a thinking and feeling level inside of you absolutely has an impact on the world around you. Now, we know this intuitively because you can pick up a vibe from people, right? And we unconsciously oftentimes relate to people based on the vibe that they're giving off. If they're giving off a vibe that says, I don't want to be here, you have a tendency to stay away, <laughs> right? Because you're reading it. If they're more open and welcoming and whatever, you, you, you're, you're more drawn to that person. So even in our interactions with one another, we can see that there's something invisible that's going on. You ever walk into a room where a couple's been fighting and you can just tell? Like you didn't see it, you didn't hear it, but you can just feel the vibe? So there's stuff going on, right? So if these two, thought and emotion, make peace in the one house, they, the thought and the emotion, will speak to the mountain and the mountain will move. (laughs) So... For our purposes this morning, I want to differentiate, just for this morning, I want to, because I think it'll be helpful, I want to differentiate between emotion and feeling, as though they're separate things. They're connected, but they're separate. And what I'd like to suggest, now I know there are you know, people that look at this from strictly a psychological perspective, uh, the predominant theory about emotions is you have, I think, four primary emotions. How many of you saw the movie... Uh, Inside out. And so you had, you had what? You had joy, you had disgust, you had fear, sadness. Anyway, so what they're saying is these are the core emotions that people have. But I want to break it down even further than that. I want to say those things are feelings and that really, according to the Bible and according to anatomy, there's really only two emotional experiences that we have. But let me define emotion for you. When I'm talking about emotion, I'm talking about something that is the source of power in your life that moves you toward your goals in life or moves you away from your goals or away from something. So, for example, a person can say, I want to lose weight or I want to quit smoking or I want to quit drinking or whatever it may be. So there's something unhealthy in their lifestyle and they say, I want to quit that. You're trying to move away from something. Oftentimes, the reason that strategy is not successful is because you have nothing to move towards. (laughs) So if you can frame it, okay, I know what I don't want. I don't want to be unhealthy. I don't want to have high blood pressure. I don't want to be overweight. I don't want to smoke, whatever the case may be. But then if you can identify what you do want, I want to be healthy. I want to feel better. I want to look better. Whatever the case may be, then you're, you're actually gravitating towards something and not just away from something. And so it can be more effective when you put more thought into it. Does that make sense? So your emotion is the the power source that moves you forward. So you could think about emotion as energy in motion. And there's really two emotions that the Bible talks about. The first one we have up here is fear. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and sound mind, right? So there's fear, but then the opposite of fear actually is not faith, according to Scripture. The opposite of fear is love, because in 1 John, I think it's 4.17, it says that perfect love casts out 
fear. And whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. So what he's telling us is in this one house, fear and love are polar opposites. They're not cohabitating together. Now, from a physiological standpoint, you have uh, two different responses in your nervous system, main responses that, that they can look at. One is called the sympathetic nervous system or the sympathetic response, and the other one is called the parasympathetic nervous system or response. Now, this is really interesting because when you look at the uh, sympathetic response, it's what typically in layman's terms we would call fight or flight So when do you and I go into fight or flight? When we're afraid, right? So when the emotion of fear is going on, they can measure all kinds of different reactions in the body. Various different uh, hormonal chemicals are released, adrenaline, your heart rate, your breathing, everything changes. And you release some pretty powerful but over the long haul negative uh, chemicals in your body. And one of the things that HeartMath and others have done is they've been able to measure that when you operate in stress, you literally turn off parts of your immune system. In fact, you turn off perhaps one of the most important aspects of your immune system when you're under stress because they can take your saliva and there, I forget the, the chemical, I actually did my master's thesis on this, so you think I would know, but there's a chemical in the saliva that fights stuff off. And literally, when you get angry, which is a fight response, when you get afraid, you literally shut that thing off. And I think five minutes of anger shuts that thing off for like five hours. By the same token, they found out that certain emotions like compassion, certain feelings like compassion, and certain things like appreciation actually activates that and turns it on. They've done further studies and they've found out that fear can turn on sort of the aging process in your DNA while appreciation and compassion actually uh, releases anti-aging stuff inside your body. There was a woman who won the Nobel Prize just a few years ago for discovering a chemical in the body that they didn't even know existed prior to her discovery, which is a chemical that turns on a healing agent inside the DNA so that it doesn't fray. And what they found out was one of the most powerful ways to turn that on was maintaining a different emotional state. So by feeling compassion, by feeling um, appreciation, you're actually getting younger. You, you can actually do a spiritual exercise where you go in your heart and you feel appreciative and you feel compassion and you're turning on all this stuff that's helping your immune system, anti-aging, the whole thing. That's called <laughs> the parasympathetic response. So in other words, when you're feeling compassion, when you're feeling love, when you're feeling rested, like when you've just had a good meal with the family, <laughs> when you've just engaged in romantic activity with hopefully your spouse, um, <laughs> uh, you go into what's called the parasympathetic response. It's the opposite. Physiologically, it's the opposite of the fear response. So both in the Bible and in your body, which is your temple, you can measure two emotional experiences that are at polar opposites of one another. So that's emotion. That's one of the guys 
one of the inhabitants in your house that must come into agreement. The other one is thought. Now, thought, thought is an interesting thing because really without thought, emotion has no direction. It's just there. But with thought, thought then gives form and shape. It's amazing how God created us when you understand these things. Thought gives form and shape to emotion, or emotion breathes life into thought so that you can begin by your thinking and feeling to make changes in the world around you, either positive changes or negative changes. And feelings are the merging together of one of these emotional experiences with a thought. And so it's key for us to be able to have enough self-awareness about what's going on inside of us that we're able to recognize which emotion am I experiencing. So, for example, if you have a lot of anger, how many of you know anger is part of the fight or flight response? Which part of it are you activating? <laughs> Fight, right? And so when you're angry, you're being aggressive, but the emotion that's at work is not love. The emotion that's at work is not compassion and it's not appreciation. So every time you're angry, you're also afraid. And so one of the best things you can do if you're battling with that or trying to get a handle on your anger is when you're in those moments, ask yourself, what is it that I'm afraid of? And if you'll start addressing the fear, you're really going to the root of the anger. Right? So how does... Oh, and here's the other thing. So your thoughts, if, if your thoughts can be emotionally neutral, then you have a workshop in your mind and in your imagination by which you can practice life. Really, I mean, how many of you have seen the movies with the, the simulators? You know, like, what was it? Star, wasn't Star Trek one of the Star Treks? Help me out, Mike. You're a Trekkie. Huh? The holodeck. What would they do on the holodeck? If they're going to a... Yeah, they would create a fantasy thing. They would create a virtual reality thing so that they could uh, explore the territory that they were about to go into in a safe way. Well, God gave you a holodeck. He gave you an imagination. Imagination was never something that was supposed to just be fantasy and take you away from reality. Imagination was really a way for you and I to have our own holodeck so that we could try various different scenarios and outcomes and we could think through those things. But it's best if you can do it from an emotionally neutral place. So in other words, you don't want it to be threatening. You're, you, you can go in without making a commitment to something and say, what would life be like if I did this? What would life be like if I did this? And really, if there's no fear involved, then science also shows us that you're better able to access like the frontal lobe where your critical thinking and your judgment and all that is that. So if you're facing a problem and you're in fear, what, what happens is, is that the circuitry into the frontal lobe kind of gets hijacked. Daniel Goleman in his book, a uh, very popular book back in the 90s, Emotional Intelligence, talks about the, uh, the physiology of an emotional hijacking, where you go do stupid stuff and you think, what was I thinking? Well, the problem is you weren't thinking because fear was motivating what you were doing. You, you see it? 
So what Jesus is saying is when you can take your thought and when you can take your emotion and you can generate a feeling in your body, then that feeling is speaking to the mountain. They are speaking to the mountain and the mountain is obeying you. Does that make sense? So what do people pray for? They've done surveys and they've asked people, what are you praying about? And here's what they've come up with. Most people are praying for one of these things. More money, better job, better health, or better relationships. How many of you can relate to at least one of those? <laughs> how many? Yeah, I was going to say, how many can relate to all of the above? <laughs> all right, so let's just break down one of these and see how this works. So they ask people when they say, what are you, when you pray for not, for more money, what, what is going through your mind? What is the thoughts that you're having when you're asking for more money? And one of the things that they found was, uh, people will say, well, I don't have enough. There's not enough. Or people will say, I need more. <laughs> Different way of saying it, right? I need more. Or I, I'm going to run out. Now, what does this tell you, just what we've talked about, what does this tell you about what's going on at, a, at an emotional level inside the person? Absolutely. They're coming to it from a place of fear. Now, watch this. You're taking a thought, injecting it with fear, and that's what's speaking to the field, if you will. That's what's speaking to creation. And then you're praying based on that thinking and feeling process. Lord, give me, or, or whatever... The case may be. Are you, are you tracking with this? So what are you actually creating on the inside that's speaking to your environment? You're actually energizing your thoughts with fear and you're charging the environment with the very thing that you don't want. Now, here, here's why this is a problem. Because in another place, Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, what will happen? You'll lose it. Now, if we try to put that in the framework of just eternity, heaven and hell, which is often how that verse is interpreted, then all of you that got saved are going to hell. Think about it. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. So by praying the sinner's prayer, if you're activating, if it's about eternity and you're activating that, then you're doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing because you're trying to save yourself. So logically, that's not what Jesus was talking about there, right? You understand? I don't think you're going to hell if you're praying the sinner's prayer. I'm just saying, let's take it out of that context. Let's put it in a different context. And what if Jesus is telling us life works like this? That if you seek to save something, you're going to lose the thing you're seeking to save. So if you're seeking to save yourself or save your life, what emotion are you operating out of? Fear. So what if Jesus is saying, when you're operating out of fear, you're creating a field, you're speaking to the universe to attract to yourself the very thing that you've been afraid of. To actually give yourself more of what you don't want. To actually experience that which you choose or desire not to experience. Are you breathing? You never put this much thought into your prayer before, did you? You just started mouthing words right away, didn't you? But see, if we are the image of God, like the Bible says, if we've been given dominion, like the Bible says, if we've been given power, like the Bible says, if we have authority, like the Bible says, then that which is under our authority has no choice but to respond to that which we are releasing. 
Otherwise, it has the authority and we don't. So in other words, you and I are the ones who are supposed to be choosing the outcomes, not the environment. So the environment is built to respond to your thinking and feeling. So if you're seeking to save your life, Jesus is saying you're going to attract yourself to very situations that will cause you to lose the very thing you're seeking to save. And yet I would venture to say that most people pray from a position of seeking to save something. And so can actually be energizing the environment to get more of what you don't want because you're praying. See, it's a totally different way of looking at prayer. The way we've looked at prayer before was God, God, Father is all loving and he'll do what's best for you. And so sometimes he says no to your prayers because he knows what's best. But see, that's all based on a model of prayer where you're praying to God. But what we're talking about is a place where you're cooperating with God to create the future. See, you and I are God's technology. God, God. <laughs> Why did he make us? He didn't make us to be robots. He didn't make us to be automatons. He made us to be his sons and daughters, his image bearers, and really lords and kings over creation. That's what we are created to be. And that's what he's moving us into. And so creation doesn't... Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, we have to take responsibility for what's happening in us. And we have to understand, I'm responsible to create a new future. I'm responsible for the answer to my own prayer because I am the technology. I am the womb of God through which He wants to birth the future. Which means there's a cooperating process... That must go on, which means I can no longer just pray any old prayer and say, well, Lord, let your will be done. Or I can't just pray any old prayer and think, well, God knows what's best for me, so he's going to override my will and my desire. Because what we're doing, when we're talking about this, we're speaking to mountains. We are speaking to creation. And creation responds. So that's why God gave you thought. That's why God gave you emotion so that you could have a workshop inside your own life to begin to develop and frame up and frame out for yourself the life you want to have. And so you take responsibility for where you're at. And it starts by taking responsibility for what you think and feel. Now, here's our mistake. And believe me. I love to study psychology. I've studied it a lot, not just in school. I keep studying it, right? And I've done a lot of counseling in, over the years. And invariably, we have this almost, it's almost a cultural stronghold that says, when I have an unpleasant inward experience, when my thinking and feeling is not at peace, when, when everything's not right in here, and it's a pattern in my life, I have to figure out how I got there or why I got there in order to change it. And it's completely disempowering and it's completely useless. You can go to therapy and I'm sure somebody can tell you how you got to where you got. That does you no good. And it's, it's what's called, really, it's what psychologists, psychologists call an attribution error. You're attributing cause and effect in a wrong way, in a way that doesn't actually work. You're actually, it's, it's an imagination. In other words, I'm this way because this happened to me when I was a kid. Well, whoop de doo Good for you. But that doesn't help you in the moment. And really, it didn't cause that. Because what happened back then is not causing you to choose to do something in your present moment. 
It's not. What's going on is you're having a thought, emotion, experience. And we've made people so stinking afraid of that stuff because we made it so hard to change. And so we thought if you can figure out why you're that way or, or whatever, you can change it. If that's true, excuse my expression, but you're screwed. Because you cannot go back in the past and change what happened to you. But what if it's as simple as, what if you really do, what if you really are great? Like, what if you really are awesome and powerful and incredible? And what if this thing really is simple? What if it's just as simple as having enough self-awareness to identify in the moment the emotion and the thought that is merging in your own life? And what if you really do have the power to break that stuff up in the moment by just saying, no, I don't want that. That is not serving me. That is not working for me. That strategy, that internal strategy is no longer effective for me. And so what if I really do have the power to say I'm going to think differently and I'm going to emote differently and consequently I'm going to feel differently? What if I really do have that power to change like that? Now, it takes practice, it takes work, it takes uh, uh, some self-awareness, and it takes an incredible amount of responsibility. Because I can no longer blame, shift what's going on inside me to someone else. You don't cause me to feel afraid. You don't cause me to feel angry. You don't cause me to feel happy. Therefore, I'm not dependent on what you do in order to feel happy. But see, we structure our whole lives and our whole relationships based on those things. If, if you can do right, then I can be happy. If you can do right, then, or if you don't do right, then I'm mad as hell. And it's an attribution error. It's stuff that's going on inside of me. So, and this is why it's so hard for people, because for whatever reason I have yet to figure out, people like to be disempowered. I just, I cannot figure it out. It drives me crazy. Why do you want to be a victim to that stuff? Why do you want to be a victim to your past? Why do you want to be a victim to other people? When you can say, I have the power to change my inward experience in the moment, and by changing my inward experience in the moment, I can change what I'm experiencing in the world. So how do we look at this differently? We have to look at our hearts as soil. That's what Jesus said, right? And we have to understand if we want to harvest, we have to cultivate a seed. So when I'm praying for more money, I'm praying from a position that I don't have none (laughs) or enough. When I'm praying, I'm running out, I'm praying from a position of lack. So what, what am I emoting and what am I thinking? See, the way this works, Jesus said it this way, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you have already received them and you will have them. In other words, you have to conceive the answer in your thinking and feeling processes and incubate it until it comes to pass. So you don't pray for something, you pray from something. You don't pray from a position of lack for abundance. You create the conditions of abundance inside yourself and pray from that answer. Can you see the difference? I'm not done. I'll give you some examples. So in, in, the, in his book, The Lost Mode of Prayer, Greg Braden tells a story about a uh, Native American friend of his who was also a believer in Jesus. 
And he lives in northern New Mexico and was in a season of drought. And the guy asked him, do you want to go pray with me? And he said, yes, I'd love to. Okay, well, we need to go to this special spot. And they had to hike through this territory. I believe he said it took him a couple hours to get to this place. And they get to this circle of stones. And the gentleman explains that it was a prayer circle that had been established by the elders. By It was, it was an ancient prayer circle. And every uh, year or ever so often, the uh, tribal elders would come out and they would make sure it was just exactly the way it was set up. And so he steps, this, this man steps inside the circle, and the way the author tells the story, he says he's watching him, and he does a few things quietly, it takes about five minutes, he gets out of the circle, and he says, are you hungry? Let's go get something to eat. And he says, wait a minute, I thought we were coming to pray. And he said, I, I thought we were coming to pray for rain. He said, I never said we were coming to pray for rain, because if we came to pray for rain, the rain could not come. What he said was, I came to pray rain. So I asked him, what did he do? So he says he stepped inside the circle. Now don't get freaked out by this, because really, all you're doing is is recognizing externally in your environment that you have a sacred space inside of you. And Christians use prayer circles. Jeanette did a teaching a while back on labyrinths, which were Christian prayer circles that were designed to help you treat your inner world as sacred by aligning things in your outer world with what was going on inside. And it can be helpful. So he steps inside. He steps inside the prayer circle and he begins to pray. And what he, all he does is he begins to, in his imagination, he begins to create rain. In other words, he begins to smell the rain in his mind. He begins to feel the rain falling on his skin. He took his shoes off and he stood there in the dirt and he began to imagine what the mud would feel like as his feet began to sink into it. And then once he had fully created inside this holodeck that God had given him, this reality, he began to bathe that reality in appreciation and thanks. And the reason it left such an impact on the author is because that night it rained. Now, it wasn't in the forecast. Can you prove cause and effect in a laboratory? No, Is it anecdotal? Yes. But come on, guys, we know this stuff works. And you don't have to be a Christian for it to work because you are, as a human being, the technology that God created to get stuff done in the world. So just because the New Age movement might teach something similar does not mean what I'm teaching is not Christian. Or just because Buddhists or whatever. I mean, come on, if you look at the collection of ancient traditions, maybe people knew something that we have forgotten about in our modern societies. And just, I mean, listen, the, 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 the Dalai Lama talks about love and compassion. So do we just quit talking about love and compassion in the church because that could be a Buddhist teaching? We just surrender that ground to the Buddhists and the New Agers? So if Jesus is saying, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you've received them and you shall have them. If Jesus is saying that you and I can speak to creation and cause things to come to happen and to come into our lives, we can't just throw it out because it sounds like something that someone else said. Because you know what you know what you're operating in? Fear. Stop it. Can't listen to anything in the Gospel of Thomas because that's a Gnostic. Text, give me a break. I, 
I've shared, I shared that experience because I've shared mine <laughs> several times. And I remember learning these things, practicing these things. I remember just practicing on, on stuff, just, just practicing. You know, there was a season that we went through in the church when we were just starting out. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't plant a church. We pioneered a church, which means we had no financial backing to start out with. And we really didn't have, pardon the expression, any cash cows that came in the doors and said, hey, Pastor, what do you want to do? Here, let me write a check. So we went through a number of seasons in our lives where we were $500. I remember we were $500 short every month paying our bills, every month. And so I would get speaking engagements or whatever as opportunities to go out and make money above and beyond whatever the church was able to pay me at the time. And I remember one particular time being um, in, in a difficult situation, but I was practicing. I had practiced this on new Bibles. I've had people give me cars this way. I've had people give me Bibles. I've had people give me neckties, for crying out loud. I was like, finally, I was like, okay, enough with the neckties. <laughs> But I knew I needed that money, and so I would just create in my imagination like I already had it. And that's all I would do. And then I would bathe that imagination in appreciation. And so I remember doing this one summer, and I got invited to go overseas to preach. And I go overseas to preach in this church that I had never spoken in before. And man, it was, we had a time. I mean, God turned that place it was amazing the things God did in those meetings. I mean, really one of the highlights of my ministerial life. Now, when you're a missionary from America and you go to other churches, typically they think you're wealthy because regardless of your lifestyle, you are one of the wealthiest people in the world when you look at it from a global perspective. Right? And I remember, and I, and I just went... For it. I mean, I just gave them all I had. I didn't know either the place was going to get tore up or it was going to get built, one of the two. And I remember um, the pastor coming to me after it was over, the day before I was, actually the day I was leaving, and he hands me an envelope and he says, What you did impacted our church life so much. We talked to the elders, we cleaned out our bank account. We cleaned out our bank account, and here's everything we have. We want to sow this seed into you. So I have enough manners to not count it right there. Stick it in my coat pocket. I get to the airport. I'll never forget. I get to the airport, and I go in the WC, which if you've ever traveled overseas is the water closet. It's where you do stuff. Relieve yourself. And, and they're a little bit more private than we are, so you can like go into a room, not just a stall. So I remember I go into this room and I close this door and I pull out this envelope. And at that time, the euro was much stronger than the dollar. And it's just 100 euro after 100 euro after 100 euro. And I think they gave me something like close to 7,000 euro. And so that... I mean, we had enough to give and bless people and pay our bills for a year off one engagement. Total surprise. Total surprise. 
And it came about by doing this very thing that I'm trying to teach you guys about. But don't wait. Don't wait till the chips are down to start practicing this stuff because you cannot master fear and you cannot master thought and you cannot master your imagination when you're under pressure. So when, when we get our first son that we were going to adopt, you've heard me tell a story a bunch of times, there was a lot of pressure in that. A lot of pressure. <laughs> but I had practiced. And so I would go down in the basement, when, especially when I was feeling afraid, I would stop the fear and I would understand what are the thoughts that I'm having. And I was having thoughts about losing him to the process in the process. I was having thoughts about broken hearts. I was having thoughts about giving up after 10 years or whatever of uh, infertility. And so I would stop those movies and I would start a new movie. I didn't have to sit there and think, why am I so afraid? How come I've got so much panic? I know it runs in my, it runs in my family. Maybe I should go get some medication. I mean, it's okay if you're on medication. Please don't, don't take this wrong. I mean, you've got to manage what you've got to do. But I'm just saying, that was not the answer for me. And so what I did was I had to deliberately begin to play a totally different movie. And so, because I'm looking forward to the future and it's a horror movie, what I did was I began to ask myself, what is it that I desire? I desire to be able to adopt this little boy. So I would create the movie where I would walk into the court and I would put myself there. I would look around my basement. All of a sudden, my basement's not there. In my mind, I'm standing in the courtroom. In my mind, many of you are there with me. In my mind, the judge is there. He's, he's writing out the documents. I'm hearing the gavel go down. I'm making it as real as I can. I'm hearing the gavel go down. I'm hearing him say that the adoption was finalized. I'm looking at the paperwork. And then I'm bathing it in appreciation and saying, Lord, I thank you for this outcome. Lord, I'm so appreciative for this. I thank you so much for this. Until I had the feeling that it had already been done. And then I'd quit. And then something would happen and I'd get triggered and I'd go into fear and panic again. And I'd go back into my basement. (laughs) And I'd go back into my sacred space. And I would change the movie. And I would change the feeling. And I would change the emotion. And I would generate a different feeling. And in a few months, I'm standing in the courtroom. (laughs) I'm hearing the judge. I'm getting the paperwork. Some of you all were there. Just exactly like I framed it up months before it actually occurred. So it works. (laughs) Amen? Let's just pray real quick, and then I want to talk to you just from my heart for a couple of minutes, and then we'll have communion, okay? Let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these people. Lord, bless them. Pour out your amazing grace and wonder and awe of who you are over their lives. Father, open the windows of heaven. Cause abundance and blessing in every avenue and aspect of their lives. Cause health, cause prosperity, cause peace in every relationship to flourish. But Lord, let it begin in our hearts first and help us through this process. In Jesus' name we pray.